All right. Um, how does that happen? Go to the top. Jump to thirteen. First Peter one verse thirteen in your Bibles, please, if you have them. I've made a few tweaks to the sheet, the the documentation that I have up there. I'm hoping to make it a little bit more edifying for us and a little bit more explainable. 1 Peter 1, verse verse 13 is where we'll be this evening. But first, let's do some review of verses 1 through 12. We're actually on week 13, verse 13. So we're still averaging only one verse a week, which isn't too bad, considering all of the tangents we've gotten on, right? Not too bad at all. Uh, But if, if you were to say the theme of the first 12 verses, as we've talked about it thus far, because we have dug in pretty deeply... And we've probably lost some of the forest for the trees. My wife is already shaking her head saying, nope, I don't know. I have no clue. So uh, what would you say the theme of the first 12 verses is? Sophia? I remember from last week, so it's salvation. Great. That means we've learned something. It is. It's salvation, right? So Peter, and and that's the thing. You know, we repeated it enough times and you'll remember it. Whether it's from last week or three weeks ago, you'll remember it. Salvation. That's right. And so Peter has been talking about salvation. And he's been talking about the suffering of the churches that he's writing to and how they are in heaviness today because of the manifold trials and temptations they're in, but that the trial of their faith brings forth this beautiful product that eventually leads us to the end of our faith, which is indeed the salvation of our souls. And we've got to remember that as we're reading, that the context is salvation. This is what Peter has been telling us about. All throughout the the first 12 verses, he's used so many words having to do with salvation. Verse 3, talked about lying. Lively hope. Verse 4, an incorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven for us. We who are kept by the power of God. We talked about eternal security, right? And how we're kept by the power of God. Uh, then he talks about the trials and the temptations, but they're bringing us to an unspeakable and full of glory joy. And the receiving of the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And then over the last several weeks, we've talked about how the prophets inquired and searched diligently about that salvation, right? And they dug and they they searched and they found out that the things that they were writing about Jesus Christ, the things that they were, the prophecies they were giving, it wasn't just for themselves that they were writing these things, but indeed they were writing them for us. And we ended last week talking about even the the angels' desire to look into some of those things. Well, this week we pick up in in verse 13. (coughs) And actually, verse 13, uh, effectively all the way um, to verse... Well, in our King James, verse 13 to verse 21 is one sentence. Alright, so this is one really long sentence. And, And we've already seen one of these, right? Peter just kind of taking a concept and running it through every theological possibility in this huge, long, run-on sentence that just keeps adding layers to the complexity of what he's saying theologically. We're only going to focus in on the first four verses of this, but I am going to read all 21 for you here at the start. Peter says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's where the, the, the screen stops, but we'll pick up and continue in verse 17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. One big long thought that carries us in all sorts of fun directions, but we're just going to look at verses 13 through 16 in our time this week and perhaps weeks following. And we focus first on verse 13. Wherefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore, the old, the, the, the old preaching adage that I used to hear growing up was, when you come across a wherefore in your Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. Or if you come across a therefore, you need to find out what it's Therefore, because there's a reason. And, and when we see a wherefore or a therefore, what we are. OK, you tell me if you're reading in the Bible and you see a therefore or a wherefore. What how do you interpret what comes after that word? What what would you say the purpose of the next phrase is going to be? Absolutely. Good job, Sophia. Because of this application, right? This is how this is what I want you to understand. So if we think of it this way, when you see a therefore, that's like the structure that's being built on top of whatever was just said. Right. So whatever was said prior, there is a foundation being laid and the wherefore or the therefore is now building up something that you can actually live in, uh, something that you, you should take from it. It's the application. So when you read that in your Bible, therefore, wherefore, start thinking application. Start thinking this is what the writer wants me to do with this information. We've received all this great information. We've talked about our election. We've talked about our adoption. We've talked about our security, eternal security. We've talked about the hope of our salvation. We've talked about how the suffering of, of our salvation gives way to, to, to un joy unspeakable and full of glory. We've talked about how the prophets wrote in the Old Testament for our benefit. All of that is great information. But if we don't do something with it, then it really hasn't benefited us. Now, sometimes we just get information. Like the book of Acts. A lot of the book of Acts is just giving you information and you get to decide what to do with it. But in the epistles in particular, the writers oftentimes give us what they want us to do with that information. They give us all the information so that we have the foundation, so that we have the, the understanding of why we're doing what we're doing. Now it's time to go do something with it. And that's what he's giving us here. So he says, what should we do? And let's, uh, let's look at the diagram here. Now, uh, um, I'm going to read this the way it kind of diagrams out. So we have our wherefore, 
which connects the previous thought. If we were diagramming the whole chapter, the wherefore would connect us into this. Wherefore, and notice the, the verb here is hope. Hope ye. And it's an imperative verb. It's a command. Hope. Ye need to hope. And then everything else is underneath. It's sub subordinate to hope. So hope is the command. And then he gives us these other thoughts. Completely. Hope completely. Hope to the end. Hope completely. And then while you're doing that, here's a participle. Participles, uh, they, they support a verb in the sentence. So while you're hoping, gird up the loins of your mind. A call to mental determination. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And then a second participle here. Be sober. And then, as we're doing all of that, he says, unto, so this is what it's going unto, unto the bringing of grace to you. This is, this is where the, that, the girding up the loins of your mind and being sober in mind gets, takes you. Unto the grace which will be brought unto you in or at the appearing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is when the hope, this is when all of that hope, remember that's the verb, right? Hope. All of that hope, it's realized at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, so this is important here. Hope is that joyful and earnest expectation of that which is to come. It's a confidence in that which is to come. So we gird up the loins of our mind. We're sober. We do something today because of what we fully expect will come. Everything that Peter is about to tell us about how to live this life is founded upon what you know about your salvation. It's founded upon the hope and the expectation that one day you'll be redeemed. It's founded upon your determination that because of everything that God has for you one day, it's worth living a different way today. It's worth living for him today, knowing what he's given you tomorrow. And so we hope, girding up the loins of our mind, being sober and hoping unto the end for the bringing of the grace that will be given to us at the appearance of Jesus Christ. That can be muddied a little bit when we read how this verse is translated in our English. Because in, in the English... He, um, we, we see actually gird up the loins of your mind as a command. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And if I were reading that in the, in the English and then assuming what was behind it in the Greek, I would think it's a command. It's a verb. Do this. It's an imperative. But it's not. It's a participle. Be sober. I would think there's another command. It's not. The command is hope to the end. And while you're hoping... In light of hoping, in light of the hope that you have in Christ, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober. That's, that's the, the, the uh, events that come alongside of the hope that you have in Christ. The hope that you have that the grace will be brought unto you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's when I'm going to receive all of that blessing. So for today, I'm going to discipline myself. It's kind of like the Olympian, right? The Olympian thinks... Four years in advance, however many years in advance. And so they're training and they're working and they're disciplining and they stay on track and they stay on target and they do everything that they, they need to do for a purpose. And that purpose is the Olympics. 
They're, they have a, an expectation of what they will receive when they get there, and an expectation of what they will receive, they work hard today. And that's what Peter's saying. You need to be ready to work for Christ today in expectation of everything that you're going to receive when he shows up. And then um, he, he goes on from there uh, to give a, another participial phrase, which is what we find in verse uh, 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. This is another participial phrase here. Uh, that's the line we're going on, and then I'll zoom in for you. So here's another participle. It's still connected to the hope. Conforming not as children are obedient to the lusts, the former lusts, in your ignorance, in the ignorance of you. So he basically says to continue doing what you did before, living in your former lusts, indicates, and I'm sorry it's cut off there, that you don't understand what you have in Christ. You're being ignorant if you live in your sin, if you persist in your sin, knowing what you know about salvation and knowing who you are in Christ. And then he goes to the but. But, be, and this one was very hard to diagram, so I hope you appreciate <laughs> you, you all see it for three minutes and it was like, Three hours of my time. Um, holiness is driven by hope. Be ye holy in all conduct, also the same as the one who has called you is holy. Because it is written, Be ye holy, because I am holy. And it's interesting. One of the things that we've learned about the Greek verb is that you don't need to have the pronoun, right? The Greek verb supplies a pronoun. If you just looked at this verb and you knew the conjugation of that verb, amy, you would know whether it's I, you, we, thee, they, my, simply by the verb, right? You don't need this pronoun. But he put the pronoun in, and when they put the pronoun in there, that means emphasis. Emphasis. Now, in this case... There's no question as to why. Because when God said, be holy for I am holy, he said that in these three passages, we'll go to them a little bit later. And in each of those, he was using that phrase, I am, which is how he introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. Moses says, who should I tell the people sent me? And God says, I am that I am. When Jesus Christ was walking on the earth and the Sadducees and the Pharisees were, were chiding him and saying, we, we follow Abraham. And as they got into the conversation, Jesus was talking about Abraham and, and they asked him, are, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, the Greek that he said there was, Ego, Amy, I am. Stating that he was the one in the burning bush. That was him. Ego, Amy. So we'll, when we get there, we'll talk about that a little bit more. 
So it's important to note, as we dig into the text, that the primary verb in verse 13 is hope. The other action words, gird up and be sober, and even in the next, the next verse, fashioning yourselves, are all participles supporting the main verb in the sentence, which is to hope. Which means we're still talking about the outworking of our understanding of salvation here. So, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Let's have somebody read us that verb there, Sophia. Audrey? Pretty close. Anazotsamenoi, right? Because we're emphasizing that, that accented syllable. Anazotsamenoi. And how about uh, the lexical form? Bell? Anazonumi. Anazonumi. To gird up or to prepare is what that word means, to gird up or to prepare. So to gird something up means to hold it up or to prepare, prepare for something. Uh, it might be, you know, when, uh, I, of course you kids would never do this, but if somebody is about to punch you in the arm or, or uh, back in, in my dodgeball days, if you knew you were going to get hit by a dodgeball, what do you do? You tense up, right? You, 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 you prepare. You kind of enfold into yourselves and get ready for the hit on the arm. You kind of gird yourself up a little bit. Or ladies, when you're trying to get up the stairs and you've got the long flowing skirt, you, you pick it up to go up the stairs so you're not stepping all over yourself, right? And my little girls do that all the time going up the stairs, dainty little shuffle, 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 you know. And, and, and so they're girding up their, the hem of their dress or their skirt to, so that they don't step on it. And that's the idea here of girding up. In this case, it's an aorist, uh, might be middle or passive, um, nominative, masculine, plural. So it's a participle, of course. So while you are hoping, and we haven't even gotten to the verb hope yet, it's later on in the sentence, but the first thing he says to do is that you need to be girding up the loins of your mind. Um, we'll, we'll come a little bit more to that in just a moment, but let's talk about the second participle first. This one's easier, Audrey. Pretty close. There you go. Nefontes. Nefontes. And how about uh, Bell? Nefo. Very good. So nefo is our verb. Nefontes is, is the, the participial form of it. This means to be sober, to be sensible, to be discreet, to have a clear mind, to be... Um, to, to, to know where you're going, what you're doing. And, and these two um, participles are, are very similar. They have the exact same parsing, aorist, middle, passive, nominative, masculine, plural. So they're both saying the same thing. They're both connecting to the same verb. They're meant to be taken together, that we are girding up the loins of our mind and being sober. We might even see them as parallel thoughts, that to gird up the loins of your mind, what he's saying by that is be sober. Uh, we might see it in that way, uh, particularly because if we remember our diagram, um, in the King James it says, 
gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. There's no and there. It's just gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. So we might see be sober as an explanation of what it means. In which case, what I should have done here, if that were the case, is, um, is I probably should have taken be sober and put an equal sign here and put it right next to gird up the loins of your mind to show that they're the same that they are correlating thoughts. But either way, you get the picture. So gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Girding up the loins. This phrase is very culturally based. Uh, the physical picture is affixing outer, loose outer garments so as not to impede motion. In, in that time, the men wore robes. They wore long robes and they would walk in these robes. But certain people, under certain circumstances, these robes would get in the way. Workmen, pilgrims on a long journey, uh, a person if they were running, warriors when they were fighting. So what they would do is they would take their robes and they would bunch it up and they would tuck it or clip it into their belt. And so it would bring their skirts up and they would tuck it into where their legs could have free motion. Once again, ladies could understand this far better than men in our culture. That if you're in a skirt, depending on the type of skirt, it makes it very hard to do certain activities, right? You can't get a full stride because of the skirt. And so you, you, are, you are limited. You couldn't run in a full stride while you have certain skirts on, unless it's a fuller, you know, a fuller skirt, because uh, it would limit your motion. And it was the same thing with these men. The, the, the fabric would get in the way. It would limit their capacity to function. So they would gird up, and, and they called it their loins. Now the loin is like your thigh, but literally they would gird up the, the, their loins. They would gird up the garments that were covering their legs so that they could function better. It would allow them to be active. Now, take that thought and think about it. It allows them to be active. Peter is saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind prepared to do something. Get your mind prepared to act. It's, we can't just sit in our ivory tower with our Bibles and sit around talking theory. We've got work to do, Peter says. You're, you're saved, so don't just sit up on a hill... And look forward to what's coming. Get ready to do something on the basis of your salvation. On the basis of the hope that you have in Christ. The metaphorical picture. Being prepared to put forth effort. Be ready to work. Be ready to fight. Make sure that nothing is in your way. Nothing is going to encumber you for the task at hand. Our memory work for the month, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And then what does Paul say we should do? And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What Paul is saying is that we need to, to, in order to fight this battle, we need to take our thoughts and we need to get ready to hold them captive. Our thoughts are going to want to take us, our heart, call it our heart, call it our mind, call it what, what we want. The inner man is going to want to take us in various directions, but our inner man needs to be directed by the scriptures. 
And if we allow our inner man to direct itself, well, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Whoso trusteth in his own heart is a fool. But who that, whoso, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. But whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. And so if we're trusting in our heart, our mind to go, and we just say, well, wherever it goes is where it needs to go. Absolutely not. We need to take those thoughts into captivity. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul gives a similar athlete analogy. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. So here we see that the runner is supposed to lay aside the weights. So, of course, obviously, he would set aside anything that's weighing him down, but he'd also have to gird up his, his loins, right? If, 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 if he had any sort, of, any sort of anything getting in his way, he'd have to get it out of the way so that he can function at his highest capacity. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, in Hebrews 12, there's as much the implication of getting rid of the physical things as there are the spiritual that would hinder us. But in 1 Peter, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. You know what salvation is. You know what you have in Christ. So now it's time for you to set your mind on something else. The idea of having your loins girded is not exclusive to Peter. Jesus said this in Luke 12. I've got up here verses 31 to 36. But rather, Jesus says, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Obviously, we're jumping into context here. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bag which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is... There will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, he says. Isn't that kind of a fun phrase? Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Jesus says, I'm coming back for you. And you need to be like the good servants that are waiting for your Lord, but you don't sit at the window and watch. You gird up your loins, you, you turn the lights on, and you shine. This is our time to shine. That sounds so cliche, but it is. It's our time to shine. It's, this, is, this is the time to work. So the believer is to have his mind ready, constantly engaged for the spiritual battles of the day, constantly focused on the end result, constantly looking toward the future of salvation. I get to rest then, I'm going to be busy now. I get to delight in God's goodness then, I'm going to be busy now. I get to, to be in the joy unspeakable and full of glory of my salvation, I'm going to be busy now. The, the, the temptations of this day are all about me, but that's okay because I, there's a day of rest coming, so I'm going to stay busy now. Don't get weary in well-doing. Don't get discouraged because what we have, we have some great things in this life as believers, but what we really have is yet to come. Thoughts on that or questions? Okay. 
So he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Then he says, hope, and hope to the end, hope ye. Let's have somebody read, Audrey. I would say, I would, I would read it, you, you're there, but I would read it a little differently. Sophia? Yeah, I'd, I'd read it elpisate. Or, el, yeah, elpisate. So I'd, I'd emphasize, instead of eight, I'd say ate there is how I'd emphasize it. You, just, that's how I'd read it, and that's kind of how, how it makes sense to me. It might be elpisate. Um, alpha though, Elpisate. Well, with the alpha sound, it probably would be Elpisate. Anyway, um, right idea though. How about the lexical form? Audrey. Um, Elpizzo, yeah, Iota, so El. Oh no, it's Iota. Elpizzo, yes, I guess Elpizzo would be right. Um, in the iota sense. I'd say elpidzo, but I um, say iota, not iota when I think of it because that's how I learned it. So yes, elpidzo, elpidzo, elpizzate, um, to expect, to confide hope. This is the word hope in the Bible. Uh, my my uh, wife, you know, when we, when we go through the, the names that we'd love to name our, our children and we have our list of Greek girl names, um, we always want to use hope and Every once in a while she says, what's hope again? And I say, Elpidzo. And she says, oh yeah, that's why we don't use it. Because having a daughter named Elpidzo wouldn't go real well. Um, so, but Elpidzo, that's the word that, that is quite regularly, I guess we could call her Ellie, right? But um, that's the word that gets quite regularly translated hope in our Bibles. Um, and this is an imperative. This is an actual verb, an aorist active imperative, second plural. Hope ye. This is, this is the, the imperative. This is the command. This is what everything else hinged on. Hope ye, girding up your loins, being sober, but hope to the end for the grace that will be brought unto you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And here's our, uh, the hope that is to be brought. It's another participle. Have somebody read it for me. Audrey? Got it. Pheromenain. Pheromenain. And how about the... Sophia? Pero. Very good. Pero. And uh, this is to bring or to carry. To bring or to carry. Participle, present, passive. Notice this. That it's the grace which is to be brought unto us. It's a passive voice, right? A lot of these have been active. You are actively hoping, right? This is you doing it. You need to hope. But the grace, the grace is not you. It's not the grace that you bring to yourself. It's the grace that will be brought to you. The grace that will be given to you. The blessings that you will receive at your salvation. So, in contrast to our Olympian illustration... The Olympian has to earn everything he gets, right? He trains for four years so that he can get to the Olympics and earn the medal. This is more or less, the medal is yours, and you need to live not working your way to get the medal, but you've got the medal, so now you live in light of that. You live right 
because the grace will be given to you. You, and, and this is the difference, as we talked, say, in our Galatians series, this is the difference between, again, legalistic religion and a liberty religion. Legalism versus grace. Legalism says, you've got to do all of this to get the prize. Grace says, you've got the prize, so because you love the one who, who is going to give you the prize, do it all anyway. And by the way, he'll give you more rewards for doing it. So the context is still the hope of salvation. Don't miss that. We're still talking salvation. The imperative command is that we hope. This is what he commands us to do. Hope to the end for the grace that will be brought unto us. You Supporting this command is that we prepare our minds through spiritual determination. The determination to obey and to do what's right. We, we, we maintain a sober mind. Clarity and discernment. That we keep a mind that is able to submit itself to the Spirit of God. And this determination must be sustained until the return of Jesus Christ. That's when our hope is realized. As Paul would say in Romans 8, that a hope that is seen is not hope. But we have a hope in that which is not seen, but will one day manifest itself. Questions on verse 13? To verse 14 we go. Wherefore, verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And then he'll give a but, and that'll be a contrast here. This verse is still connected. This verse is still connected to hope. All right? This this. Participle, the whole phrase is a participial phrase connected to hope. So we're still under the command to hope. And he says, under this command to hope, don't fashion yourselves. There's a word for us. Audrey? Yeah, you got it. Suske menoi. And how about the lexical form? Go ahead, Sophia. Suske matizo. And this means to fashion alike or to conform to the same pattern. To fashion alike or to conform to the same pattern. To, to see something and to emulate it. Alright? This is again a participle. So we're still... Participles always need a, a verb to... I mean, they don't always. Sometimes they stand on their own. But grammatically speaking, a participle... Uh, points back to a verb, a main verb in the sentence. So unless something is being written in a unique way for emphasis, it's always going to be pointing back to the, the verb. Um, it's a verbal adjective. So it, it relates itself to the verb in the sentence. And in this case, the verb it relates itself to is hope. So we're still hoping here. We're hoping by having a, a, a mind that's girt up for battle, having it sober, hoping to the end, 
by not fashioning ourselves. Not fashioning ourselves. In this case, we, we'd most likely see this as a middle, not a passive. I give you both the middle and the passive there, but it's a middle, right? Because it would be something we're doing to ourselves. Not fashioning ourselves. We're not, we're not forming ourselves, conforming ourselves to the pattern of what? Not fashioning ourselves, he says, according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And he says this because we are as obedient children. That as obedient children, we should not form ourselves after the kind of lusts that we lived before we were saved or the kind of lusts that unbelievers live in. Paul appeals to the family relationship that you have with God in Christ here. Now, let's talk about this. We've talked about it a little bit. Let's talk about it a little bit more just in a few verses. Those who accept Christ are called the sons of God. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. We are sons of God by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. Those that believe in Jesus become sons of God. That means that when people get up and they say, well, we're all the sons of God, we're all the children of God, it's simply not true. Don't believe them and rebut them. Use John 1.12 and say, let's go to John 1.12 and, and, and learn who are the sons of God. Romans 8.14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then 1 John 3.1 and 2, John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All three of these passages relate the reality of us being a son of God to our relationship with Jesus Christ and our relationship with God by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And those who are the sons of God are thus the, the adopted. We, we talked uh, much earlier in the book about the adoption that we have in Christ. And here we see it coming up uh, again as we are called the sons of God. We don't really need to establish it because we've done so already. Um, I, I gave Romans 8, 14 and 15 in red because this is where we see the clearest link. Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And he says in the next verse, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So God is our Father because we have been adopted, and because we're adopted, we can rightly be called the sons of God. And then a couple of other verses that talk about our adoption. So you're, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a child of God. You are a son of God. You have been adopted into the family of God. Now, as a child, you, you desire to please your father, right? That's something that you want to do. If you have a right relationship with your father, you desire to please your father. Now, in this life, fathers aren't perfect. And so sometimes um, the things that, that our father does are things that um, are, aren't necessarily always the best for us. We fathers make mistakes, and we can do things that hurt our children, hurt your feelings. Uh, we can uh, you know, try to toss you and you slam your head against the ceiling and, and uh, dad just hurt you and those sorts of things. It hasn't happened with my children or anything. But, um, but you know, these things can happen, right? So, so fathers aren't perfect, but our Heavenly Father is perfect. 
which means he's never done anything against us as his children. He's never done anything. He's never made a mistake with us. He's never accidentally done something that's damaged us. Now, he has allowed us to go through trials, but that's for our best good and his love, right? And so God loves us. And and because of that, we ought to desire to please him. Now, an adopted father. Now, adoption is kind of, again, an interesting thing on on a human plane. But if we think of, of adoption in this way. If we think of God as our adopted father, that he adopted us into his family, that he made us his child, that he ushered us into all of the hope and the blessings of his family, going from the family of sin to the family of God, from Satan's slave to God's son, from the abusive, terrible family of Satan, abused through sin, to a family of joy and peace and provision and love and wealth and happiness in, in God through Christ. Imagine that. Imagine being a child whose, whose family was abusive and terrible and horrible. And then one day having somebody come and saying, We've te- we're, 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 we're giving you to a, a family that will love you. A family that will love you has adopted you. And you go into that family, families like, like the ones that we, we know, where there's love and there's acceptance and there's peace and there's security. Going from that terrible, abusive family to a, a family of love and of joy, there would be all that much more reason to want to please your adopted father. And that's the idea. That God has taken you out of this family of, of abuse and ushered you into a family of joy and of peace. And because we love our Father, we should not fashion ourselves according to the world. We're now in, in the adopted family of God, and He's given us the royal garments, and He's, made, uh, he's cleaned us up, and He's given us food, and now we're, we're finally getting some, some meat on our bones after having been starved in the family of sin and abused, and our bruises and broken bones are finally healing, and our, our, our ribs, we can't quite see them as we could see them before, and our cheeks have filled out, and I'm wearing something other than rags. Now imagine all of that happened, and one day you say, okay, how great it is to have this wonderful family where I have all of these things. And you take those clothes and you tear them and you take the food that you've been given and you throw it away and you go and you sit out in the dirt and you get yourself all dirty again and you sit there in the mud in torn clothes and, and, and you're hungry and you, 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 you start getting bruised and beaten and torn again and you live like that. Where, where you're no longer that. You're no longer in that family. You're no lo- you don't have to live that way anymore. But you're choosing to live in the muck and the mud and the mire of the abuse of sin. Even though you have the rightful place at the table of the king. And that's what Paul, the Peter is kind of saying here. Don't fashion yourselves according to your former lusts. Don't live the way the world lives. Don't live under the abuse of sin because you don't have to. Romans 6, 18 to 22. 
Paul says, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And he says the same thing. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, in the same way you used to yield all of your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, members to serve uncleanness, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end, as an obedient child, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Paul continues, he says, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? You are ashamed of those things. What fruit was there in sin? What fruit is there ever in sin? Well, we know what the fruit of sin is, is death. That's all it is. That's what he says here. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So live it. Be an obedient child. A child that takes full advantage of the blessings that he has as being an adopted son of God. And Peter literally says that to pursue these former lusts after having been redeemed from the power of sin is... What's that Greek word there? Go ahead, Audrey. Agnoia. Gnoia means to think or the mind. A is the negative particle meaning not. To pursue the former lusts is to be thoughtless, to be a not thinker, ignorant. Interestingly enough, agnoia. Does that sound like a word we have today? Agnoia? Ignore. Yeah. One even closer. Ignore is very good. To ignore. And that's very similar to ignorant. There's one that's even closer. That's really taken on a life of its own today. Agnoia. Agnostic. Right? A Gnostic is what? Thinker. Uh, a Gnostic, uh, uh, one who has knowledge. That's what Gnosticism began as. They had secret knowledge. They were, they were, they were people of, of knowledge. Agnostic, not knowledge. <laughs> I don't know is literally what... And that, that, that's what an agnostic is technically claiming. I, I, I don't know. I don't have knowledge. I have no clue. They say that they, they're agnostic. That means they, they don't know. But agnostic does imply ignorance. It's not that you couldn't find out. It's that you aren't finding out. It's not that you can't know. It's that you won't know. It means that you're being thoughtless. It means you're not putting the time and the effort into answering the question. You're ignorant. And Peter says that if you live a life pursuing the lusts of your flesh, knowing what the first 12 verses of 1 Peter tell you about your salvation, you're ignorant. You're thoughtless. You're, you're just not thinking right. You don't get it. 
you, you, you haven't put the proper time, effort, and thought into understanding what you have in Christ. Because if you understood what you had in Christ, you'd recognize that anything that the world can offer, if God says you don't want it, you don't want it. 